The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 200. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. That's where you can watch this podcast if you're just listening to it. You can go out to YouTube and watch it. Now, it's not live, but it is there for your viewing consumption. So if you just got to watch me do the podcast, go out there and do that. And of course, this is episode 200. So I've made it to episode 200. It's a milestone, a landmark in the history of the Brian McClanahan Show. We've got 200 episodes in the book, and I'm really excited about that. You can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, and those that do get the best deals on upcoming courses. I've got one coming up on reconstruction and recreation. If you are a podcast listener, though, you can always use the coupon code PODCAST and get 10% off the five courses that I already have up there. So go on out to mclanahanacademy.com and enroll. Also go to brianmclanahan.com, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. The lights you can actually see now, so you can keep the podcast going that way. And you can always support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to learntruehistory.com, learntruehistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Liberty Classroom. Great website, over 20 classes. I teach some of them with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Jeff Herbner, Bob Murphy, a lot of great instructors. You want to go out there and get your Liberty Classroom, but use my affiliate link, learntruehistory.com. You support The Brian McClanahan Show by going there. And you can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by getting your Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com. It's not a lot. The proceeds aren't a whole lot, but you can support the show by wearing it around, and people will find the show. And also rate the show on iTunes or wherever wherever you're getting the show, your favorite podcast listening hub, because the more reviews, the better, and the more people will see it. Moves up the list then. Okay, so all of that said, all that promotional stuff out of the way, I want to talk about the issue of the day. And this is one that has been um, in the news a lot, so I'm, I guess, technically a little bit behind. In fact, Judge Knapp just did a, uh, a little bit on it uh, recently, but I want to talk about Trump's wall, Trump's border fence, and more importantly, I want to talk about the Constitution in relation to Trump's border fence, but not the fence itself, whether Trump has the power to go out and declare a state of emergency to go and build the wall. So this is a big issue, and I, I've I want to talk about it in one particular reason. A longtime listener of, of, of the Brian McClanahan Show emailed me. He's now working for a, uh, a major online foreign policy journal and wanted my comments on this. And unfortunately, I didn't get the information back to him in time, so I had to submit the piece. But I figured, well, if I do this, then anyone wants to know who wants to know what I think about the wall, the Constitution, the president can go out and just listen to this podcast and they'd have it. They can pull quotes from that, and they'll know where I stand on these particular things. So, I want to talk about historically the president's quote-unquote emergency powers. I want to get into, uh, is that even possible? Where that comes from? Is it in the Constitution? We're going to look at this from a legal position. Now, let's have some full disclosure. Number one, 
I'm in favor of the wall. However, I'm not in favor of the president using emergency powers to build it. Okay, so I'm in favor of a wall because I believe it would stop uh, some semblance of undesirable immigration, meaning that people that are criminals, uh, people that are doing things that don't need to be doing in the United States. And let's get some things clear about immigration in the United States now. And we can't really compare this with the founding period. You know, people go back and they'll pull quotes from the founders. Well, they were fine with immigration. The founding generation was looking at immigration in a different way. They wanted people, of course, who would come to the United States, which was, I mean, we had 4 million people in the United States in 1790. 4 million. That's the size of Alabama today. We had 4 million people. And so you had this vast wilderness. They needed people to come out here, artisans, merchants, traders, skilled workers, to go and help build the United States. They needed these people. And those are the people they wanted. In fact, you, you, they always qualified their quotes on immigration. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we, we want some immigrants, but they need to be people who are going to, one, assimilate, and two, they're going to produce to make the United States, to make the states wherein they reside better, right? This is, this is how they looked at it. What's going on with immigration now has nothing to do with that. The, the issue of immigration now is purely political, The one party wants to import large numbers of people because they realize if they can get these people to vote and they're going to have them vote whether they're U.S. citizens or not, they're going to swing swing elections in their favor. This is all about political power at this point. They're using it as a a tool to say, well, we've got to help these poor downtrodden people. They're just trying to get the United States, just trying to have a better life. That's all emotional. That's emotivism. But the real issue behind all this, of course, is votes. And so as we move forward in time, we started running into this particular issue. How are we going to, and the two issues have always been assimilation and uh, the quality of people coming in the United States. What are they going to do for the United States? Are these skilled workers? Are they the best? Is is, uh, this country that's sending these people in, are they the best people from that country? Or are they the undesirable people from that country? Meaning they don't have a job. They don't have a skill. They don't have anything. They're just asking to come in here so we take care of them. In the United States, whereas the country they're coming from, there's no prospects there. So, I mean, that country doesn't want them. When you look at this, look, Mexico closes off their southern border to keep people out of Mexico. <laughs> but yet they're fine with people running through Mexico to get the United States. So Mexico has a very stringent immigration policy, but they're fine with people coming in the United States. So this is a, this is a real crisis. And the, the problem with it, again, goes back to this issue of nationalism. I'm also for controlling immigration and other ports of entry. Let's have a real policy about border security. Now, nationalism, again, is the issue. Because I look at this as a state issue. This is a think locally, act locally issue. If Texas wants to control immigration, they should be able to do it. Same thing with California, New Mexico, Arizona. If we had a real federal republic, it wouldn't matter if all these people dumped into California because California... Could, could not control the general government. When you start getting a national government, though, that creates a real situation because California then can swing the powers of the Congress in favor in one direction or another, and that can create a situation where you have national laws that are influenced by people who aren't even U.S. citizens. So if we didn't have a national situation, immigration wouldn't be a national issue, The situation of voting wouldn't be a national issue, but because we've done that, and that goes back to the transformation of the United States, the recreation of America, 
which I'm talking about in this forthcoming course, it all goes back to that, the post-war period, because we created a national government at that point, and we're living in the disease of nationalism. So states should be able to restrict who lives in that state, but they can't anymore. They can't because of nationalism. Okay, So th this is where this issue becomes a bigger crisis. Because of nationalism. If this we had a real federal republic, you wouldn't be worrying about this stuff as much. California could do what it wants. Texas could do what it wants. Take your pick of your state. New England, New England state could do what it wants. Georgia could do what it wants. You could do whatever you wanted. If those states wanted to restrict who lived in that state, they could do that. And then you only would have a general government for general purposes. And they wouldn't be passing laws of every minute detail. We wouldn't have a situation where we have 800,000 non-essential federal workers because the general government wouldn't be that big, right? So all these things would be accomplished at the state level. And this wouldn't even be an issue. You see, this is the beauty of federalism, real federalism. So I'm for restricting immigration, but I think that there needs to be a different way to do it. And I do think that border fences work. I mean, we had Jim Acosta go down there. The knucklehead was down at the border, and he's standing in front of the fence. He's saying, well, there's no immigration crisis here. Yeah, because there's a fence there, right? So, I mean, people aren't coming in. They're not going to try to get to the point where they're just going to be blocked. They're not going to stand at the wall and say, help me come through. No, they're going to go somewhere else that's porous, and they're going to come through that way. This is just ridiculous. He, he actually proved the point against him. And people that are in areas that there's a border barrier have said this thing works. It works every time. We don't have an immigration problem where there's a border barrier. So it proves that the thing works. We also need to control, again, other ports of entry. But that's, that's irrelevant here because what I want to talk about is the executive branch and the powers of the executive branch to control this problem. To con can the president essentially declare a state of emergency to build a border wall, whether you like it or not? Whether you like the idea of the fence or not, the question is, is there a legal authority here to do it? Now, Judge Napolitano has come out and said, no, the president does not have the, the legal authority. This will be an illegal move by the executive branch to do it. I agree 150%. I support the initiative. I support the idea. But it would be illegal for the president to use, quote unquote, emergency powers, which don't exist to do it now. The other thing here, and I'm going to get into that in a second. I'm going to read Article 2. We're going to look at the history of this. The other situation which is not really being discussed here is Republicans had the Congress for two years and the White House for two years, and they didn't pass any type of border security measures. This is the failings of the stupid party, right? This is why the Republican Party is the greatest threat to America, because they campaign on things that they're going to do, and then they never do it. And yet people will still go out and rah-rah Republican GOP elephant stomps the donkey, right? The problem is that the Republican Party has always been this way. They're always a national party, and they're really not interested in following through. They are terrible at governing. If the Democrats had wanted a border wall when they were in power, if they had the White House and the Congress, whether they would have gotten it no matter what because they know how to ram through a legislative agenda. Go back to the Obama administration. Obama's president. There's a lot of obstruction to Obamacare. They get it anyways because they use the nuclear option. Didn't matter. They were just going to get Obamacare. They were going to foist it on the American public, whether the American public wanted it or not. You were going to get it. 
the Republicans could have done the exact same thing. I mean, Trump was saying, well, I mean, the, Dem the Democrats would filibuster. Well, the Democrats would have worked around that if they really wanted a border wall. Nancy Pelosi was actually right in this very strange meeting in the executive office when she said, you know, you don't have the votes for this thing. If you did, you'd already have it. You'd already have it. So the House did pass. I mean, see, that's the thing. Even after the Democrats were elected to control the Congress in 18, the 2018 election, the Republicans still controlled the Congress. They could have passed any type of border security measure they wanted, and the House did, but the Senate blocked it. And the Senate wouldn't use the, quote, nuclear option for this. The president said, I'm just going to shut down the, the government until I get what I want. Now, the, the Republicans are the problem here. The Republicans have always been the problem here. You could have had border security for two years and you didn't get it done. So why anyone would vote Republican in the upcoming election is beyond me. I, I'm not suggesting you vote Democrat either. But at least the Democrats do what they say they're going to do. If they say they're going to ruin America by passing some stupid unconstitutional legislation, that's what they do. The Republicans say, we're going to save America. We're going to do this. Well, they don't ever follow through. Nothing. Nothing. Crickets. Right? So this is the real issue. It's the GOP. It's the stupid party, the grand old stupid party. The GOSP, the grand old stupid party. So <clears throat> that, that aside, that, that, let's, let's set that aside. Let's talk about the president's power, though, to actually declare a state of emergency and build a wall. So what I'm going to do, and you can, you can get this in my American Constitutions class. Again, let me just plug that for a second here. My, Americans, my American Constitutions course at mclanahanacademy.com is a comprehensive course in the 40 lectures on the Constitution. Now, a good portion of that is my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. I go through that in detail. But not just that. I've got uh, lectures on the Articles of Confederation, American Constitutionalism before that, state constitutions. I have, I have an art, uh, a lecture on the Confederate Constitution. I do uh, lectures on the amendments. So you've got a lot of meat out there, and I do address presidential powers in detail in that particular course. And you've got that 10% off coupon podcast. If you want to get the class, you get 10% off. You do save a little money. That is supporting the Brian McClanahan Show. So get that. Get that course and um, learn the American constitutional tradition. I mean, it's... It's essential. This is where this issue is, the, the core of this debate goes down to. Now, I will also say this when I get into this. I'm going to read this, and we're going to talk about Keep a couple of things in mind here. Does it say in Article 2 the president has emergency powers, number one, and does it say, number two, the president is chief legislator? So let's read Article 2, and most importantly, Article 2, Section 2, and Section 3, because Article 1, or, I'm sorry, Article 2, Section 1, gets into who can be president. And it also, actually, I'm going to read one part of Article 2, Section 1, uh, the last clause. And then I'm going to read Section 2 and Section 3. So this is Article 2, Section 1, last clause of that. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the basis of my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. The president takes an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's his job, right? So, is the president doing that? That's how we should measure the president. But let's look at Article 2, Section 2. 
The president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. He shall have power, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate, and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the President alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. The President shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of the next session. So that's Section 2. Section 3. He shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. So stop there for a second. This is where people say the President's chief legislator. I'm going to get into that. It doesn't say he's chief legislator. There's a qualification here. Now, he may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them, with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. All right. That faithfully executed part, too, is problematic. Number one. Is the president chief legislator? No. He can give a State of the Union address where he can recommend measures to Congress, yet the Congress can scrap those things and do whatever they want. Now, the president, of course, has veto power, which I didn't get into in this. That's actually contained uh, in Article 1. The president has veto power. George Washington thought that veto power was not uh, to be used as a legislative hammer. If the Congress is passing constitutional legislation, the president should let it go through. He accepts the bill as a whole. He doesn't single out things that are going to be, uh, that he disagrees with. The bill is constitutional, he's going to do it. He's going to sign it into law. Okay, so, the president is not chief legislator. Now, I think that this particular situation is going to come down to this. The president will in the next couple of weeks, next few weeks, give a State of the Union address. And I think he's going to make the case for border security and the State of the Union address. And then we'll see what happens there. This shutdown is going to go on. And, of course, this has become a hot political potato, right? You've got people that are out of work. You've got 800,000 federal workers that are on the paycheck right now, and the Democrats are capitalizing on it. But, again, it comes down to the Republican Party could have done this a long time ago. And, and the Senate is really the issue here, because the Senate is saying we're not, we're, we have to have a bill that reads the same, that goes to the president, we're not going to have a bill, we will obstruct, we will obstruct, because we control the Senate, we'll obstruct, and we'll ins insist that we have a border wall in a bill that comes to the president's desk. So the Senate is really the one, the institution, that's saying we're not, I mean, this is not the president, the president's saying I want the wall, and so the Senate's following through on the wishes of the president of the United States. The president's also said he won't sign a bill that doesn't include a border wall. So $5 billion or whatever it is, which we all know that that's a drop in the bucket for the general government, right? I mean, $5 billion, bucks, it's like 5 bucks 
right? Actually, it'd be more like, you know, 500,000 bucks maybe or something like that. You know, it's, it's not a lot, right? Five bucks would be, you know, $5 million. So uh, we, we, it's not a lot in terms of the whole scheme of things and, and, what, and the amount of money the Congress spends. They've spent a lot more money on other stupid projects. But the president is not chief legislator. The president also, when he says he has to enforce the laws, uh, the president has no emergency powers, though. It doesn't say the president has emergency powers. That's not in Article 2. It's not there. It's not included in that particular part of the Constitution. It's not included anywhere in the Constitution. So where does the president think he has emergency powers? Where does this actually come from? Well, I'll tell you. We have to go back to the Lincoln administration. We have to go back to the 1860s and think about what was happening in the United States in 1861. Abraham Lincoln used emergency powers to invade the South. And here's how. So Lincoln's position on the war was simply this. The southern states were in rebellion. This was not a, this was not a foreign policy issue. We could say that immigration is a foreign policy issue. We could maybe get around some things with that. But immigration is not a, I'm sorry, the, the war was not a foreign policy issue because Lincoln said the states are in rebellion. There's, the union is still intact, but we've got factions in these states that are too powerful to control by ordinary means. And so I'm going to send in the army. I'm going to call up the army and I'm going to send them into the south and we're going to invade the south and restore order. That was the point of troops marching through Maryland and why they were resisted because the people of Maryland and the probably... I mean, we know the majority of the South, but a very close minority, I mean, you're talking about razor, razor thin here, did not believe the president had the authority to do this, right? Probably razor thin majority in the, in the North did, but um, for the most part, the majority of Americans did not believe the president had the authority to do this. This was not constitutional. And in fact, the Congress was not in, in session when this particular crisis began in April of 1861. So the president said, well, I've got, I've got to do something. I've got emergency powers, essentially. I'm going to call up the troops. There's an insurrection. I'm going to enforce the laws. This is where he gets into I'm going to enforce the laws of the Union. And what law was he looking to enforce? The tariff. So he's going to enforce the laws of the Union. He's going to ensure that the laws be faithfully executed. And he's going to send in the army to do it. Now, this presents an interesting question. If the United States is invaded by a foreign power, let's say the British had landed on the shores of America in 1861 and the Congress is not in session, can the president repel sudden attacks? Well, yes, the president can repel sudden attacks as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. The president can say, we're being invaded. We have to use the Army to invade. Now, he can also say, Congress, get in session and declare war. We need funding. We need to raise troops. We need to do all these things. The Congress would have to come immediately into session. That didn't happen in 1861. He didn't call the Congress into session. He just did it himself. So uh, the the power of the president to take emergency powers and this and and this was this was criticized heavily criticized in the North. The powers of the president to do this are not to be found in the Constitution. They're not there. They don't exist. Yet Lincoln did it anyways. Now the press the precedent he would say well. I, Andrew Jackson did the exact same thing. Andrew Jackson was going to use the United States Army to enforce the tariff in 1832. This is true. Jackson would have done it. But there's a slight difference. 
the Congress passed the force bill which authorized President Jackson to send in the army to collect the tariff. You see, the Congress was actually doing its constitutional responsibility in authorizing the president to use force to collect the tariff, to enforce the laws of the United States. You can say that was all done legally. Now, we can question whether the president should have enforced it, whether South Carolina had the authority to nullify the tariff. That's a whole other issue. But in terms of how they were using the mechanisms of the Constitution, you can look at 1832. Jackson was following the letter of the law in allowing Congress to pass the force bill so that he could, he could use force. Lincoln did nothing of the kind. So this was an emergency. This was a declaration of emergency, essentially. And Lincoln acted without Congress, and then Congress gave him the okay after they got into session. That's not how it works. That's not how it ha- This is not constitutional government. That's government of men. That's government by fiat. That is dictatorial powers. That's tyranny. So that's a president acting as a king. Emergency powers are things kings do. Kings do. And of course, you go back to, uh, to England during the English Civil War. This is essentially what King Charles was doing. And one of the things the parliament was resistant to, he was taking money that they had allocated for something else and spending on what he wanted. And Trump has said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take money that's allocated somewhere else. I'm going to spend it here. That's, that is monarchy. Okay, so this is not something that's legal under the American model or system of government. Now, who else used emergency powers? Well, then you got to fast forward into the Great Depression. And you have to go to Franklin Roosevelt's inaugural address. And so that's covered in my nine presidents who screwed up America. So I've got a little section on it here. Um, and I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs because these paragraphs summarize where what I think about this issue. So if you haven't read this book yet, go out and get it. Awesome book. I mean, without question, awesome book. Even Michael Malice says it's an awesome book. And uh, if you like Michael Malice, um, he says it's awesome. So, Roosevelt's first speech of the American public as president is often regarded as one of the most important orations in American history. It was beautifully written and artistically delivered. While it lacked specifics, it foreshadowed what a Roosevelt administration would do to the Constitution. Roosevelt contended that the, quote, dark realities of the moment called for, quote, called, quote, for action and action now. He introduced a catchphrase used by every American politician in the last half of the 20th century. Roosevelt pledged to, quote, put people back to work by using the government as the employer of last resort. This proposal, in concert with a slew of ideas designed to control prices, keep people in their houses, reduce the cost of government, nationalize communications and transportation, and control banking credit and speculation, became the focal point of Roosevelt's first 100 days in office, a term the media latched onto in Roosevelt's first term and used as a yardstick for presidents ever since. Roosevelt declared, declared war on the emergency and mobilized the American people into a, quote, loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline because without such discipline, no progress is made, no leadership becomes effective. Naturally, Roosevelt was ready to, quote, assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army of our people dedicated to a disciplined attack upon our common problems. How comforting and monarchical. Roosevelt understood that what he proposed could not be done constitutionally, or at least that his program was not consistent with the Constitution as ratified in 1787 and 1788. Thus, he distorted history and argued that, quote, 
This end is feasible under the form of government which we have inherited from our ancestors. Our Constitution is so simple and practical that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. Translation. The Constitution is a malleable living document that can be amended without amendments. Trust me, the founding generation designed it this way. Roosevelt had found the technique that the progressive movement could use to put their unconstitutional agenda into effect. If you can't prove it's compatible with the Constitution, lie about our founding document and keep lying until the lie becomes the truth. Roosevelt did concede that he needed the Congress to be a complicit partner in the unbridled takeover of the federal government, but then he warned that if they refused to act and pass legislation to quell the crisis, he was determined to take, quote, temporary departure from the normal balance of public procedure and asked for, quote, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were, in fact, invaded by a foreign foe. There, ladies and gentlemen, are your emergency powers. Trump is essentially echoing Franklin Roosevelt. And I had a colleague of mine say that Trump is, is just following the old Democrat line. He is. I mean, look, Trump is a 1940s Democrat. That's what he is. He's a 1940s Democrat. And um, there's no question about it. Now, we, I mean, the emergency powers idea comes right out of Franklin Roosevelt. And, of course, Harry Truman capitalized on that and, ca- and uh, using emergency powers to uh, nationalize the steel industry. I mean, this is something presidents do, and, and Roosevelt's providing the cover. Hey, look, I want Congress to act here, but they don't. This is an emergency, and i got to do something about it, so I'm just going to seize power. This is exactly what Trump is saying can do. He says it's legal. Well, why is it legal? Because Franklin Roosevelt did it, because Abraham Lincoln did it. But it's not legal. We just read the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president has emergency powers, particularly not in this regard. So the mere hint at doing this is completely unconstitutional, completely, unequivocally unconstitutional, and should be resisted by any person who believes that the Constitution is a limitation on power, on federal power, and a limitation on the executive branch. And of course, some knuckleheads out there are finding, rediscovering, or at least finding for themselves that, hey, look, we've got an American king We've got a problem here. Of course, if their guy was doing this, they'd be fine with it, particularly those on the left. And I think they'll drop their adherence to the Constitution if their guy gets in office next time, or their girl, whoever it is, right? So the the issue is consistency. The Republicans are fine with it right now because, hey, it's our guy. We want to go out there and abuse power. Let's do it. What we really need are people that are dedicated to consistency in terms of constitutional policy. And Trump and declaring emergency powers will be doing something that's unconstitutional. Whether you support the policy or not, which I support a border barrier. I support border security and border control because we've got this national system now anyways. You might as well try to ensure that you don't have abuse in it. I do believe the state should be part of this. So if we really reoriented our focus and think locally, act locally, and real federalism, all those kind of things, which I hope that people are starting to do, we could, we could avoid this kind of crisis. But... We've got it. And so the question is, can Trump do this legally? Absolutely not. That's my take on it. There's a historical precedent. It's Lincoln. It's Roosevelt. It's Truman. Trump is, is following these very strong, powerful executives and saying, I'm just going to do it myself. That is the basis of this quest to use funds that aren't allocated for it. Congress has to allocate the funds. This really is a congressional issue. 
I mean, Nancy Pelosi is 100% right when she sat there and said, look, we're just not going to do it. I mean, this, this is our prerogative. So, uh, and, and the Democrats are as much part of the shutdown as anyone else because there's really no negotiation taking place here. The Senate is the really the people that should be negotiating, not the president, but the Senate, because they, they control half of the legislative branch of government. And they need to be coming up with a plan that will get the government back working again, if that's what they really want. So, uh, this is a congressional issue, not a presidential issue. Uh, and I think that Trump needs to make that case very clearly. And not just that. He needs to understand that emergency powers are unconstitutional. So the Congress needs to act here. The president doesn't need to act. But that's my position on it. So for those of you that are wondering, I know this is a little, I mean, we've had some things going on, but this is where, and this is, of course, the 200th episode. So I thought it was a nice discussion to have on the 200th episode. The Constitution, again, it's where I make my, uh, make my, it's my bread and butter, right? It's, it's, it's in my wheelhouse. So I thought it'd be a good issue. But I hope you enjoyed it. If you if you do need to quote me, you can do it in this particular podcast. Take this, pull a quote out of it. If you're looking for an article or something, you want to know what I think about it, you've got this particular episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. And I will see you next time, both on audio and video, for The Brian McClanahan Show.